0: Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, Robert. How are you?
0: Doing all right. Uh, as I told our guest, Stefan Moore, uh, before we started, any day that I'm alive and don't have COVID is a good day. <laughs> so so that's kind of where we're at. We're going to be talking about COVID quite a bit today. We have that to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about criminal justice, uh, kind of a police and protest roundup. I don't know if there's any protests, a lot of police stuff probably. Uh, And then we're going to talk a little bit about an issue in the Louisville mayoral campaign about Craig Greenberg and his push for, his potential push for an education department uh, in the city of louisville so we'll talk a little bit about that but we also have a guest stefan moore who is the president of the kentucky young democrats he is he was with us earlier today he talked to us a little bit about organizing in the middle of a pandemic kind of what the kentucky young democrats have been up to this year so far and kind of where they hope to go so that was a great conversation always love to talk to stefan he's a good dude um so yeah that was very nice uh, to have him on
1: yeah it was a great conversation
0: yeah i, I totally agree All right, but that's kind of what we're talking about. So without any further ado, let's get to talking about COVID. So Jasmine, as expected, COVID continued to get worse last week. I mean, I don't know if everybody expected it, but I certainly did. Our seven-day case average is now clear of 4,000 cases per day, and our 14-day average is bearing down on that number. Meanwhile, hospitalizations and deaths continue to rise. Uh, Today is Wednesday, and I think we actually saw one of our first decreases in our hospital census for COVID in a very long time. It was just a slight decrease. It might be just a blip, but yeah, it it has gotten a lot worse week over week, that's for sure. Every county in Kentucky except Woodford is red. I think actually Carlisle and far western Kentucky might have gone orange today Mm -hmm. as well. And anyways, that means red means more than 25 cases per 100,000 population. Southeastern Kentucky continues to be the hardest hit region with several counties, including Perry, Owlsley, Clay, Whitley, and Bell, with more than 200 cases per 100,000 population, and nearly every county in the region with more than 100 cases per 100,000 population. There are a lot of other hard-hit regions, including the western coalfields. There's five counties with more than 100 uh, cases per 100,000 population. Central Kentucky is now having a really rough time. Marion, Taylor, LaRue, Hardin, Nelson, Spencer, Mercer, Boyle all have more than 100 cases per 100,000 people. And northeastern Kentucky, Carter, Greenup, and Lawrence counties all have – more than 100 cases per 100,000. So Jasmine that's basically the whole state, you know, southeastern Kentucky, northeastern Kentucky, central Kentucky, you know, the western coalfields. So you know, there's a region in just about every part of the state that is is having a really, really rough time with COVID. But it continues to be the case that southeastern Kentucky is the worst off when it comes to COVID. It's interesting to note that the places with some of the lowest totals in the state are highly vaccinated. You know, while cases are still quite bad everywhere, Woodford, Anderson, Scott, Kenton, Campbell, and Boone are among the few counties left with fewer than 50 cases per 100,000. Now, that's still really bad. Uh, You're red at 25. And and these are some of the few places where it's less than 50. Um, And and also all of those counties are among the few counties with more than a 50% vaccination rate. So you know, maybe it would be even better off if they were up to, you know, 70, 80%. Woodford, I think is above, it's like 73% vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And they were all the way down to like below 20 cases per 100,000 at this point. So yeah, they're they're in really good. I mean, they're not in really good shape. They're in quite bad shape, but they're much better than everybody else. So so that's Yeah,
1: I mean, they're the only non red county. And I was gonna point that out that they're the most vaccinated county. And then I was like, No, Robert will get to that. (laughs) Sure enough.
0: Yeah, there's also one county in far western Kentucky. But I think that probably has more to do with You know, not a lot of people getting tested out there or just the fact that it's a small and rural county, Louisville and our urban areas, Louisville saw another large jump in the number of cases last week, we went from 3,200 to 3,900 cases. That's, I think the largest week in Louisville's history only had 4000 cases sometime in January. So that's probably a number we're going to cross next week, we're going to have more than we're going to have our most cases in a week ever in Louisville, probably next week. Lexington is also approaching its winter peak and could cross over very soon. So that's where we're at in our urban areas. Our hospitals are really reaching a critical point. So 86% of our ICU capacity in the state is being used. And our hospital census is now higher than than at any point in the COVID crisis before now. It is very bad and it shows very few signs of abating. I did say we had one day where we actually had our hospital census go down You know, on one hand, it could be a blip, so we don't even know if it's good. And then also, whenever your ICU uh, census goes down, that could be for bad reasons as well as good. So, you know, uh, hopefully something we're going to get a handle on sooner rather than later and uh, our cases will start to go down. So at one of his press conferences, the governor was asked about the use of field hospitals like those that were set up at UK and in Louisville at the beginning of the pandemic. Do you remember those field hospitals, Jasmine? Yes, I do. He said that the issue is currently staffing. There are actually lots of ways to expand the number of beds in the state. You know, I think he said you can you can convert surgery wards where people do things like get a knee replacement or like me when I had back surgery. Like, you can, I, I could have put that off for like another couple of months to give COVID a chance to cool down. You know, a lot of those, those surgeries, like those you can convert those into hospital beds or ICUs. And I've even seen some hospitals across the state and even starting to see, I, I saw one in Rowan County where they're setting up like tents outside to increase the number of beds in hospitals. So there's ways to expand the number of beds. But the issue when it comes to hospitals is staffing, getting the people cared for with nurses and doctors is difficult after, you know, a year and a half of really, really hard work from all of these people that's got them really burnt out. And and that's just a really big struggle that we're facing right now. So our vaccination campaign continues at about the same rate as before. We are at about 7,500 people a day. And that's where we've been for, you know, a month, two months. That's about where we're at. We're not going up. We're not going down. We are at 7,500 people per day getting vaccinated. As I've said many weeks before, this isn't enough. It's going to mean a very long time before we have the vaccination level necessary to really beat back the pandemic. But it continues abreast. And, you know, as long as everybody stays on top of it eventually that will catch up to us. Uh, Let's let's hope at least. It's worth noting, though, that, you know, Florida, uh, which is a state that has really, really had a rough time, they went all in on vaccinations as really their only mitigation metric, you know, they, they, of course, you know, banned schools from from acquiring masks, there's a lot of like anti mask behavior going on there from the, the state government there in Florida. And and really, Florida has a 54% fully vaccinated uh, rate. That's pretty good. That's actually one of the better top quarter uh, in the whole country. Uh, And really, almost two-thirds of the state has gotten one shot of the vaccine, which that's that's significantly better than Kentucky. However, you know, they're still one of the worst states in the country for COVID. So additional mitigation measures like masks and, like, distancing – uh, they still really do matter. Uh, it's kind of all of these things in conjunction that make it work. Everybody's got to get vaccinated. That is by far the best thing, but it can't be the only thing. And, and, and Florida is a, a good test case for why that's the case. You know, you do need to continue to wear a mask. You do need to continue to, you know, stay as distance as you can um, when, when you're able to. All right. School. School is really limping up. Along, uh, currently there's at least 24 school districts that are shut down, um, and there is a variety of NTI and, and makeup day strategies that are going on. Um, Max Wise, who's a senator, uh, he who is the chair of one of the committees that would be taking on the issue of COVID restrictions, if we do have a special session, which we'll get to in a second, and, and he held a hearing today on Wednesday about what to do about COVID. I think everybody's kind of memory hold the uh, the pizza party uh, plan that that uh, you know Robert Stivers came up with a couple weeks ago, but there wasn't. I mean, it was kind of a, a, a wide ranging discussion, and, and one of the things for schools that they at least discuss discussed was this idea of a test to stay program. So if you are a, a child who was exposed to COVID nineteen through uh, you know a, a student that that ended up testing positive. Instead of going to, into quarantine, what they are allowing students to do is to get tested every day. And as long as your test comes back negative, you can stay in the class until your quarantine period would be over. So that would be a way to reduce the quarantine needs for students, which I think is really driving a lot of the school shutdowns. You know, we are seeing a ton of kids test positive, but the it, it's obviously an exponential growth thing when you start looking at the, at the number of kids who've actually been exposed. And if you can reduce the quarantine numbers by doing something like a test to stay program, maybe... Maybe you can have things that stay open. Now, I don't know how effective that is, because you know, it does take a little bit for you to to show up as positive for COVID-19. And you might be contagious before that. So you know, I haven't, this this just happened today. I, I I haven't really seen any scientists or medical professionals weigh in on a plan like this. Uh, that's something that I would be concerned about, but I would be interested to see what the reaction from the medical professionals would be about this test-to-stay program that got discussed today. There are several schools that have implemented it because, you know, you're having a ton of schools that are shutting down. Uh, and one of the things that didn't get discussed today, I don't think, is the 10 NTI days, which is the only the, the, the full amount that's allowed by the legislature earlier this year. And, and that's something that I don't think that they've really talked about changing. Uh, and if that's the case, schools have to find a way to stay open. So anyways, that's school. So Andy Bashir and the Republican legislature do appear to be in serious talks about a special session to address COVID concerns. It's clear to me that Andy Bashir is really the only person with any kind of plan. However, the result of the Supreme Court's decision is that a response is now in the hands of the GOP. So, so Governor Bashir, when he was talking about the potential of a special session, he said he was going to call one soon, uh, and that he wanted to call a session before the state of emergency ends, which I, you know, I don't know exactly when that is, but it was thirty days after it started. He said the biggest thing he was seeking was an end to the 10-day NTI requirement, but he said he had lots of other priorities. He said he would be okay if he didn't get everything he asked for, but he he really did want masks in schools, which I think is a fair thing to ask for. Uh, and and you know we currently have them through a ruling from the school board association, or sorry, from the Kentucky school board. Uh, but I don't know how long that would last since it's coming from the executive branch of the government. Uh, Republicans, for their part, do seem pretty divided right now regarding their approach to COVID. You know, like I said, nobody's really mentioning the pizza parties right now. But but I think, you know, I saw a quote from this thing called Local 12. I think it's a, a, news, uh, a television news station up in northern Kentucky. And there are two northern Kentucky legislators, one in the House and one in the Senate, that I think really typify the Republican response right now. So the first one is this, quote, we are looking to collaborate with the governor, but mandates for things like masks. I do think they diminish trust in the vaccine, unquote. So that's Kim Mosher. And, you know, she is saying, you know, we want to cooperate with the governor, but his plan for masks, or we're not really totally sure about it, but, you know, open to it, talking about it. And here's the other quote, quote, I don't think we are in a state of emergency. People are getting back to normal, unquote. So that is Senator Damon Thayer, Twitter blocker in chief.
1: <laughs> yeah, COVID's only the worst it's ever been. So, yeah, yeah.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, not a great quote there from Damon Thayer, he continues to be Damon Thayer. Uh, but yeah, that that I think just goes to show you the divide in the Republican Party about how to approach COVID. Kim Mosher clearly trying to take it seriously, trying to thread the needle of, I don't want to make all the Republicans in the state mad after they, you know, hung... Andy Bashir and Effigy, I don't want them to do that to me too. I'm going to not make your kid wear a mask in school or whatever. Uh, and then Damon Thayer, who's going all the way in to say, we're back to normal, despite the fact that we are at 86% of our ICU capacity in use. So COVID is worse now in Kentucky than almost anywhere in the United States. That's something that I don't think we've talked about much. There's not a lot of places that are worse off than us right now. I think that this probably has to do with the amount of mitigation that we have uh, done early in the pandemic. Like, you know, when Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia were really, really having a rough time last winter, and we were, of, of course, also having a rough time, but not nearly as bad as them. I think we had a lot of mitigation strategies in place that prevented a lot of people from getting covid Now, that's undone. We do not have the same amount of like mask mandating, uh, and people required to do COVID mitigation, as we did last year. And I think a lot of the people that didn't get it last year, because of those mitigation strategies are now getting it. So we are actually significantly worse than just about everywhere else in the entire country. But, you know, that is where we are. And, and, you know, we have to pull together now so that we can avoid a real disaster. We are just so close to our hospitals, like, teetering on the brink of falling apart. And and that's that's not where we want to be. And, you know, Governor Bashir has faced a lot of criticism about not necessarily wanting to work with the Republicans in the legislature. And for his part, has really, you know... Seems like he's making an attempt to do that with this potential special session. So, you know, I don't know how that's going to work. Clearly, the Republicans are going to be really tough to work with and haven't been very cooperative on COVID at all. Uh, and, and, and you know, uh, but but that's what we have to do. I guess it's what we have to do. So, Jasmine, how are you feeling?
1: <laughs> it's all just very frustrating because I don't understand how Republicans can't see what's going on. Like, when we had more restrictions than other states, we were doing well, relatively. We were doing bad, but we were doing better than most places. Now we don't have restrictions. We're doing terrible. Our hospitals are filling up. The legislature passed this 10-day NTI limit and were adamant about getting kids back in school. Now kids are not in school and not even virtual learning because of their actions. And I just don't understand how they can be okay with letting all of this happen.
0: Yeah, you know, the thing about politicians, Jasmine, is you're always thinking about politics. Uh, And and that's kind of a, a rough situation to be in. And I mean, I guess they're having to balance you know, the political realities that they're facing, which is like the Republican Party and the Republican voters really don't want anybody to admit that there's COVID. Like, they just don't want it. And and it's just been really clear since the beginning that this is a partisan issue. And, and that's a real shame. And, and you know, I do appreciate people like Kim Mosher, who are at least giving a shot to these things. But even she is like, I don't think we need masks, which is, that's not good. You know, look at the reality that we're facing. Uh, And and I guess that's the best that we have when it comes to dealing with the Republicans, because the other side is like Damon Thayer, who says we're not in a state of emergency, who's, I guess, content with 90 percent full ICU beds. You know, and I I saw I mean, it's just the the factual inaccuracies. Uh, We didn't even get into Rand Paul's op ed this week uh, where he said, you know, we're seeing plummeting hospital utilization and plummeting deaths, which is the opposite of what's happening. It's it's just crazy that you you know that's I don't I I don't know if it's not true and if something is not true and you say it does it count as a lie? I I think so. Uh so that's that's where we're at with that. Uh I I mean I agree with you. It's just so frustrating. Uh, you know, Andy Bashir was able to do I I mean Andy Bashir has been holding it together so well, but but so many of the tools that he used last year have been taken out of his hands and and that's you know that's where we're at uh and, and i just really really hope you know i really hope that this delta surge just kind of ends they kind of did that in india kind of did that in the united kingdom so it might just end on its own and i guess that's the best that you can hope for because it really just doesn't think doesn't seem like the republican party is going to be up for doing anything about it so yikes yep yeah all right jasmine what do we need to know about criminal justice this week
1: All right. So I've got four stories here. None of them are really related to each other, but they all fall under the criminal justice umbrella. Um, The first one is the Crystal Rogers investigation. So last week we mentioned that the FBI had begun conducting raids in Bardstown related to Crystal Rogers disappearance. On the seventh day of the FBI's search in a Bardstown neighborhood, the FBI said that they had recovered multiple items of interest that are potentially relevant to Roger's disappearance. And those items have been sent to Quantico for testing. The FBI also asked people to come forward with any information. Um, So I I guess this is probably just a plea. You know, they're trying to say, hey, we have something. So now is the time to tell us if you know anything, whether what they have is damning or just relevant, you know, I think it's hard to tell, but they're, they're clearly using this like piece of information to, to try to get people to talk, um, which they've, they've been trying to do that for six years now in these cases. Yeah. Yeah. So, the search was happening in a subdivision called Woodlawn Springs at a home built by the construction company owned by Brooks Halk. Brooks Halk was Crystal Rogers' boyfriend at the time of her disappearance, and he's, you know, kind of been the person of interest um, this whole time. But it it sounds like the FBI um, was, you know, like digging up a, a home in this neighborhood, and the house was built the same year that crystal rogers disappeared
0: yeah it sounds kind of wild uh i mean this whole story has been crazy the entire time it's been going on but yeah i wonder if the fbi will be able to turn anything up that that has kind of constantly been the the case with this this crystal rogers issue is that it always seems like a lot of people know more than they're kind of like leading on and you never know who knows what um Mm -hmm. and, and you know maybe maybe this will be the thing that gets somebody to come forward the feds being involved and them digging up, I mean, if something was there and people realize that it might be over now, uh, maybe they'll come forward. But we'll yeah. see. And
1: the last note about this story is that that search has been paused um, this past week due to bad weather. So, you know, we'll try to update if anything else comes from this story later on. Story number two, um, as we mentioned in a quick hit recently, Patrick Baker, who was pardoned in state court by Matt Bevin was convicted of murder in federal court. Um, and this past week, the victim's sister said that she would potentially support a sentence reduction for Baker if he cooperated in the investigation into Bevin's pardons. So, um, the assistant U.S. attorneys in that case confirmed to the court that they're looking into the fundraiser that Baker's family held for Bevan. And so maybe there's some kind of bargaining chip for him if he cooperates with that investigation.
0: If anything actually happens with Matt Bevin regarding his pardons, I would be pretty shocked at this point. but.
1: Yeah and and also this was just a statement made by the victim's sister. It's unknown if the government would even offer him some kind of opportunity to cooperate. Usually that opportunity to cooperate often comes, you know, before the trial when you're making an offer for a plea deal. Now he's gone to trial. There there's not a huge incentive for the government to work with him unless they think that it would be helpful for their investigation into Bevan's pardons. I don't know. Well,
0: I, one of the things that I do take away from this is, you know, the victim's sister. I mean, Patrick Baker, you know, more than likely killed this person's sister and was convicted. Uh, and the person that the, sis- the victim's sister seems to be angry at right now is Matt Bevin. <laughs> like that, I mean, that just kind of goes to, I mean, it kind of goes to show you that, like, You know, pardons as a power uh, is vested into the governor and the president and who those people are really matter for a lot of different reasons. And it's probably a smart idea not to let people like Matt Bevin become the governor. So we should be thinking about that as we go along here. So,
1: yeah. And and like, I mean, what's crazy about this whole thing is that in at the end now. The pardon made Patrick Baker worse off. So in state court, he was only found guilty of reckless homicide. He wasn't found guilty of murder. Um, he got 19 years in state court because I think there was also a robbery charge and some other charges. But now he's been convicted of murder and faces life in prison in federal court. And so he he's worse off than he was before. Of course, he still has an appeal from his federal court trial. So it, it's not over. But right now, he's not in a good position. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, that's. that just goes to show you. Matt Bevan did not do his research. Who could have thought?
1: All right, so story number three, the Supreme Court of Kentucky has ruled in a case about the Good Samaritan law. And I just wanted to bring that up because I think that the ruling is super narrow and, and kind of changes the way this law might help someone. Um, So Kentucky passed a good Samaritan bill in 2015. And so basically what it is, is that um, a person cannot be prosecuted for possession of a controlled substance or possession of drug paraphernalia. If in good faith, someone requests emergency medical assistance for themselves or another person who's having a drug overdose and The reason for a bill like this is if you're with someone who is overdosing, you might be scared to call the police because you're afraid of getting charged yourself. You're afraid of your friend getting charged or, you know, someone you don't even know. Like you don't have to know the person, but it's basically an incentive for someone to save someone's life without having to worry about whether anyone's going to go to jail.
0: Yeah, and not even, maybe not even necessarily an incentive. It removes a disincentive to, you know, do the, like, life-saving, life-saving phone call. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yes, a disincentive Yeah, is a better way to put it. Right. But this week in Wilson versus Commonwealth, the Supreme Court addressed two combined cases. Here's the scenario in case number one. In case number one, there was a running car in the 911 caller's driveway. She called the police and said that someone was slumped over in a car. The police came and the person in the car had been using drugs, but eventually woke up, was evaluated by EMS, um, and didn't want any further medical treatment. In the second case, the 911 caller said that she saw a man Very definitely passed out in the front seat of his car. She walked around the car and she told the operator he's just hung. He's just hunched over. The operator told the caller that she was sending an ambulance and a police officer. And the caller said he could be drunk, but I don't know what's going on. And the operator replied, it could be medical. You don't know. So those are the two scenarios we have. And the question in the case was whether the Good Samaritan exception applies to their prosecutions. And the Supreme Court held that the trial court has to determine whether it was objectively reasonable for the caller to conclude that the individual's physical condition was the result of a controlled substance use and that neither of these cases met the standard. And... I think this is a really narrow ruling because, so you have to look at, it has to be objectively reasonable, but in these cases, I guess because they didn't say it was from drugs, it wasn't objectively reasonable. I feel like this case puts it on the caller to know when someone's having a drug overdose, and I don't think that...
0: Those people are really equipped to do that. Right. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, And so I think that this may change how this law is used. I think it will be used a lot less. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really narrow ruling. And while I understand that the scenario that this law really contemplates is maybe like friends who are using drugs together right but but that's not that's I'll- not what the law is limited to strangers can call the police because they suspect someone of an overdose but this case seems to essentially say that if you don't tell 911 that it's a drug overdose you don't get the exception and in the second case i thought it was especially narrow because the caller said like he might be drunk or something he's hunched over in the car and the the 911 operator like tried to
0: try to get them to say yeah, try, yeah she's hey, like why you, you don't you don't know. <laughs> she might as you well have been know. like why don't you say it's medical so that we can make sure that this person doesn't go to prison yeah it's yeah, it's so, yeah. yeah
1: so i thought that this was a bad ruling by the supreme court and it, it's just like another example of i, I think that our supreme court is much more conservative than it ever has been um, with the election of Bob Conley most recently, um, but the last few Supreme court elections. And, and so I'm, I'm worried um, about like what other reforms that we've passed might get undone by our current Supreme court.
0: Yeah. And, and, or, or at least like narrowed to the point of strangulation, like, you know, that's like the the good Samaritan law has not been overturned. But it has right. been really reduced in terms of what it's been able – what it's able to accomplish. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, it is just – the upshot of this to me is that like it's going to result in more people going to prison for, for drug crimes uh, where they've inflicted mm-hmm. you know harm upon themselves and that's about it. Uh, and that's a real shame uh, in my opinion. So yeah.
1: Agreed, Robert. And then our last story is about LMPD, a couple LMPD whistleblower lawsuits. Uh, lawsuit number one, an LMPD officer has filed a whistleblower suit after being demoted for disclosing an alleged sexual assault by a sex crimes detective. Um, and then lawsuit number two, an LMPD officer has filed a whistle- whistleblower suit after disclosing misconduct in the Explorer sex scandal. Um And something crazy in the complaint of that lawsuit was that the plaintiff is alleging that there was a whiteboard um, with the title Rapegate um, that had odds about officer indictments and like numbers of victims and things like that within the Explorer scandal, which is really crazy, really inappropriate. Um,
0: Yeah, really bad. That's bad. I'm going to go ahead and And say it, it.
1: It also alleged a lot of, like, racial stereotyping, like calling all black women a certain name and all black men a certain name. Um, It makes some really bad allegations. So, um, two more LMPD-related lawsuits, and they seem never-ending.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just more more information and, and potential evidence about you know a really bad culture at lNPD is what it kind of mm-hmm. seems like to me yeah like it's a real cultural issue there um, bad behavior that is kind of metastasized whoof all right Jasmine uh, more bad news from from you about you know different criminal <laughs> justice things so uh, yeah I, I we don't have any quick hits today but I did want to talk a little bit about uh, a small dust up last week regarding Louisville mayoral candidates Craig Greenberg and his plans for education. So, you know, education, of course, is a a huge issue in just about every level of government in the state of Kentucky, and really increasingly so in the past five years or or so. Uh, And and here in Louisville, you know, the teachers union has a lot of power, um, our school board has a lot of power. uh, and, And really, the mayor, when it comes to education doesn't have a lot of power. And that's kind of what this issue centers around. So, as Mr. Greenberg often does, he posted some pictures of himself running with different Louisville community members. This weekend, it was with a high school student and, and Greenberg tweeted out uh, about his education priorities. So you know, it's just, you know, what are you going to do on a Saturday when you're running for mayor going to post selfies and talk about what you're running on? Like, that's pretty standard fare for anybody running for office. Uh, and, and what his tweet actually said was, and this is in his words, quote, as mayor, I'll create our city's first Department of Education to strengthen and support all of our schools from universal pre-K to colleges and adult workforce development," unquote. So, that caused a lot of eyebrows to raise. So, you know, in Louisville, we independently elect the JCPS school board. And the mayor has, you know, really very little to do with public education. And that's really a point of pride among education leaders here in Louisville. And And they take their independence from the mayor's office very seriously. You know, the JCPS school board and their uh, superintendent are the people that manage education in the public schools in Louisville. Louisville. And that's that's who does that. It's not the mayor's office. And that's something they take very seriously. And Craig Greenberg saying as mayor, I will start an education department, (laughs) caused some people to think, huh, maybe he wants to put an end to that. Uh, Greenberg followed up with a clarifying tweet saying that he envisioned a department that coordinated education or uh, coordinated the different public and private education institutions from pre K to higher ed to kind of get everybody on the same page. And that would be what the the Louisville Department of Education would be would do in a Greenberg administration. I think one of the issues around, uh, you know, this why this created such a dust up is that the current mayor is a really strong supporter of charter schools, while every member of the JCPS school board and the Jefferson County Teachers Association are not in support of charter schools. And the current dynamic between the mayor's office and education leaders is not good, mostly because of that issue. So it's understandable that education leaders could see, you know, this Department of Education as a potential way for the the mayor, a a potential Mayor Greenberg uh, to start using his authority to push charter schools because, you know, that's a tactic that that, you know, the current mayor might have employed potentially. But it is worth saying that that's not what Greenberg said. (laughs) He did not mention charter schools. Uh, He did not say anything about charter schools in the middle of this. However, his clarification also didn't address the concerns around charters at all. And it probably would have been a good idea for him to have done that. Right now, I don't have any idea where Craig Greenberg stands on charter schools. Uh, he, I, On his website and everything, he just doesn't mention the issue. Maybe he thinks it's divisive. Maybe he thinks that's in his best interest. But in my opinion, he would really stand to benefit more than he would to lose if he would come out and say, I oppose charter schools, or I support charter schools in this way. I I think it's a discussion that people are going to have. And it's going to be a part of this race just because of how important the issue is here in Louisville. So so that was kind of the, the whole dust-up. Another wrinkle in this is that JCPS school board member James Craig called out Greenberg. Uh, in his tweet, he only posted schools like No Middle, DuPont Manual, uh, and and those, of course, are schools uh, downtown that are uh, doing quite well in terms of like their standardized test scores, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he I think in his tweet he was like, these are great schools. And, you know, it was like, we have all kinds of great schools, implying that, you know, there's schools out in the West End or in the South End that are that are good schools as well. Greenberg followed up by saying that he was a proud product of JCPs schools and that his wife taught at Wheatley Elementary, which is in the California neighborhood. So, you know, I, my wife taught at a, <laughs> a school like that, I, I guess is that what we were kind of getting uh, around there so you know i do think i was just talking to somebody about this and uh this week and and they said you know jerry abramson used to run through uh every part of louisville he would run downtown he'd run on the east end, he'd run in the west end and you know i guess bike too jerry abramson did a lot of biking um and this person i was talking to actually grew up in the west end and, and you know sometimes i think like that's just for show who cares but this person said that like that was actually really meaningful to them so Maybe it would be worth it for Craig Greenberg to, you know, take a run through, you know, Shawnee Park or through, uh, you know, whatever, like Shively uh, and, and just post some schools there, too. Who knows? Maybe that's coming. We'll see uh this caused consternation for me uh, and, and Stefan our, our guest I would assume too I haven't really talked to him about it but uh you know the get up movement the the movement for universal pre-K Craig Greenberg did invoke universal pre-k as his uh in in his tweet uh, and I can say with confidence that the, the get up movement does not support like the idea of of using uh you know the, the universal pre-K movement as a backdoor to, to get charter schools. That's not our agenda. That's not what we want to do. So nobody get mad at us for, for that. So so that's what's going on there. Uh, Jasmine, did you see either of these tweets? And, and what did you think about this controversy it was, as it was unfolding over the weekend?
1: Yeah, I saw the tweets. And I think I just was confused about what exactly he wanted to do. I agree with you that... I wish the clarification addressed charter schools because that's that's what I would want to know. Yeah. And I think that that's something that a Louisville mayoral candidate has to take a stand on, probably.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of one of the things about about Craig Greenberg's candidacy is like right now he started very early. Um, the, the field is kind of taking shape, and if the field is shallow on either side, you know, there's a lot that he can probably get away with not taking a stand on. That's mm-hmm. kind of one issue, like, as a voter in Louisville that I'm a little concerned about. I would like to know where our mayor stands on all of these issues before we elect that person to the position. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's kind of one of the things he's really sussing out, and, and I do appreciate, you know, a little bit of the pushback that he received from the education leaders in town to try to get him to take a stand on some of these things. You know, I'm not an anti craig greenberg at all i just would like to know where he stands on a lot of these things so um, yeah there you go uh all right well there you go that's our show for this week let's get to our interview with stefan moore
1: stefan moore is the president of the kentucky young democrats He was elected to this position in February of 2021, and during his tenure, the Kentucky Young Democrats have hosted a successful virtual convention and have continued to organize in counties throughout Kentucky. Stefan is beginning a new job with the Charles Booker campaign and previously worked for John Yarmus district office. So Stefan Moore, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast.
2: Hey, thank you all for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, so really excited to, to finally be on. So thanks so much.
0: Yeah, thank you for coming. We're really excited to have you. So since becoming the president of Kentucky's Young Democrats, you know, I guess it was in February and COVID was like, you know, really bad in the wintertime. But then it got a lot better. And you're probably like, you know, we're going to be able to do all this kind of organizing in person. People are going to be coming out to do stuff. And now all of a sudden it's way worse again. So as, uh, you know, the president, I guess you guys do elections, you know pretty frequently, I don't know if it's every year or whatever, but your term is is not, you know, four years or anything. Um, tell us a sense, give us a sense of, you know, how the organizing is going within Kentucky and Young Democrats, yeah. like starting new chapters, helping your existing chapters, you know, with the limited time that you have in the middle of this unpredictable pandemic.
2: So I'm going to back up just a little bit. I became president of the Louisville Young Democrats in 2020. Um, in January of 2020, I had a whole strategic plan typed out. And then February, March, 2020 is when COVID happened. So we had to shut everything down. Um, so since, you know, we were shut down for about three months trying to figure out like everybody else, what was happening, what was going on. Um, and then In June of 2020, uh, Louisville started doing virtual events. And because everybody was at home, and that was about the only thing that anyone could do, um, our virtual events started to pick up steam. We started to, you know, actually grow as an organization during COVID, which was very surprising. So, you know, obviously, like you said, I became... State president in 2021, and just tried to continue that. I mean, one of the first things we did is, is when I was state president, is we um, had a women's suffrage event virtually, and uh, and hosted some state reps on there. And you know, we've continued to try to keep up the virtual organizing. It's it's easier to do that with younger people, I think, because they're more accustomed to it in general. But uh, you know, the older folks coming around because that's all we can do right now. So. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's been challenging, but also, um, opening and rewarding and really challenging, um, challenging us in terms of, you know, creativity, uh, to try to think of new things. So, uh, blessing and a curse.
0: Well, yeah. Bef- uh, and do you mind to just talk to us a little bit about the different, uh, Kentucky Young Democrats chapters that, you know, how, how has it been going with like, you know, helping, helping the more established chapters and how is, you know, creating new chapters gone so far this year?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first off, we did, you didn't mention that at the top, but we did have our national convention that we co-hosted in Cincinnati this year. Um, It was a joint like Cincinnati Covington type thing. We had an event in Covington, and that was really successful. We were able to pull together young Dems from all over the state. um, And so we were able to get a a better idea of in person, like what we look like, how we we interact with each other, develop relationships, and all that. We've had three new chapters, I believe, uh, since I've become Kentucky Young Democrats president. Um, Warren County did not have a chapter previously, and they do now. We know that's a, a, a huge you know, concentration for Democrats in terms of turning people out, and maybe uh, flipping counties. But Warren County is a place, I believe Greenup County uh, has a young Democrats or wants to get one started, and then McCracken County, um, they've been able to start getting things off the ground as well. So uh, our two biggest chapters, Louisville and Lexington. You know, Mayor Catherine Corlett is doing phenomenal work here in Louisville. Uh, they just had a field day, which was a a mold of your traditional like after school field day. Um, where you play kickball and games, but also the games were related to field work, uh, like campaign field work. And so we got to we got to see David James act like a disgruntled uh, person at the door, and that was that was very fun for everybody. So uh, Lamar down in Lexington is doing great work. Lamar Allen, he ran for state representative in twenty twenty, uh, and now he is principal of what's in prep Academy and their young Dems actually helped uh, start the community garden at that school. So doing a lot of uh, active community work and they're having a meeting next week. So they're, they're going on all cylinders. So we've, we've got some great organizing happening around the state.
1: So tell us a little bit about the team of leaders in Kentucky young Democrats right now. Um, So your team's been in place for about half a year. So how has everyone been able to come together to organize the young Dems in Kentucky?
2: Yeah, so that's an ongoing process. um, And our leadership team has been super focused uh, for the past half year on our state virtual convention that you all mentioned. And then also our, uh, national convention, we had a lot of logistics to to pull together for that. Um, Dayon Tomanich is our finance director. Uh, Seth Woods, our national committee man. Aaron Pritchett, our national committee woman. Um, Dustin Burley is our VP of programming. He's out in Anderson County. Um, they are all doing phenomenal work, and we're meeting on a regular basis uh, to try to make sure that we're, you know. Consistently strategizing and, and keeping things in play. We've got a leadership retreat uh, that we're we're looking to plan um, upcoming soon, and uh, you know it's gonna be it's gonna be exciting once we get past that because then we'll have a more concrete plan uh, going forward for the rest of the year. So I'm, I'm really excited about that.
0: Yeah, it is really exciting. And I mean, uh, just watching a little bit from afar, it looks like a lot of good stuff going on in the Kentucky Young Democrats. But, you know, it is kind of interesting when you talk about young Democrats and, you know, maybe not as young Democrats, uh, because, you know, young people often have different, you know, political opinions than older generations. and, And oftentimes, as you mentioned, kind of require a different kind of organizing just because of familiarity with different types of technology or just different expectations or whatever. So you know, as somebody who's been engaged in organizing both young Democrats through your work with Kentucky Young Democrats, and you know, not as young Democrats in kind of your day job, uh, working you know either in the uh, the Yarmouth office or in upcoming in the you know the Booker office, what are some of the major differences that you see when it comes to organizing young people?
2: Yeah. So first of all, this is a great question, pretty fair doozy. Um, I would say that. So young Democrats are going to be more likely to have new ideas, uh, but they're not going to be necessarily as likely to be able to follow through on those ideas and make them happen. Um, older older people, because they understand, like they've maybe been in it longer, they have more experience, they have more uh, just natural uh, connections with with the people that you know kind of do. Some political organizing, you know, they may be more apt to follow through on projects, but they may be like the same old projects that have always happened, um, and they're not really like as creative or as imaginative. And I say this is a very general statement because you know you've got some older folks that will have crazy off the wall ideas that that go fantastic, and then uh, have some younger folks that uh, are incredible at following through. Um, and will you know text you right back, email you right back, and never drop the ball. So I don't want to disparage like anybody in either of those groups, but I would say generally that's the biggest difference is that you know it's it's younger people, and, and that's the other thing too is older. I, I would I would say that people have a general perception of like younger people as like college students and people that have all this time to knock on doors and do all of this volunteer work, and I mean you know young Democrats are 18 to 35. So you've got a lot of us that are raising small children and doing a lot that, you know, requires a lot of time. Uh, So, you know.
0: Amen to that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I always kind of say that, uh, when I was in my early to mid twenties, was the time in which I had some of the best ideas I've ever had, and also some of the worst ideas I've ever had. So, <laughs> I think that I, I, I follow what you're saying there, and I think that that's very prescient. Uh, just kind of requires a different sort of expectation and a different type of organizing, and it s- sounds like you guys are know that and are and are, are and are doing the best you can with it. So, you know, Kentucky Democrats here in this state sp- specifically, we've often had like a very significant divide between you know, rural and urban Democrats and also between progressive and moderate Democrats. So, you know, I'm interested. Do you see young Democrats falling more in one camp than the other? Are, are, you know, most younger Democrats in your chapters coming from like urban spaces or are they all progressives or are there some, you know, rural chapters out there and are there some moderate younger Democrats? Um, what are the dynamics between these different factions? What does that look like, uh, with younger folks and how does that differ from how it looks with older folks? (sighs)
2: So, I mean, young Democrats as a whole, we've been we've been generally focused on just just finding where the Democrats are, right? Like young, old, you know, new, old, like it doesn't it doesn't matter. Um we've just been looking for Democrats and trying to be active. You know, we put together a platform during our state convention um that had rural members as well as, you know, people from urban areas and, you know, there was pretty broad consensus on on most issues uh, amongst young people. Just because I think you know, urban, urban and rural, the urban rural divide, while it is it is real, um, the kitchen table issues, as they like to say, uh, kind of go across Kentucky. Um, it doesn't matter what area you're in. You know, you need access to universal pre K. You need you know access to broadband, high speed broadband in your area. You know, you need clean water, right? So those are all things that we can stand for that, you know, don't cause any divides. And there's all kinds of other things uh, that resonate with young people, uh, whether they're in ur- urban or rural areas like student loan debt. So, you know, we, uh, we just try to focus on those things and really grow our numbers and focus on winning elections.
1: Yeah, so switching gears a little bit, we've been talking to you about the young Democrats, but that's not the only thing that you do. Um, tell us a little bit about how you became a political staffer and how that job is different than all of the organizing work that you do.
2: Uh, yeah. So I, I became a political staffer by starting in campaigns. I and mean, honestly, like I, I did some campaigns. I met a bunch of people that were involved in politics and I let them know like, Hey, I want to work for an elected official one day. And, um, I started in Indiana, I moved to Louisville about 7 years ago and uh, you know since then it's just been a matter of networking and uh you know I got a call from uh you mentioned me leaving Yarmouth office I got a call from Nicole Yates who used to be the district director in Yarmouth office and she you know she told me to to come in for an interview uh and I mean that was that was kind of out of the blue. I was working at call centers and restaurants, and you know, trying to, you know, just make ends meet out here, uh, like a lot of young people, and uh, just kind of, kind of fell into it. And so, it's, it's treated me well, um, and and it's worked out. You know, I think one of the biggest differences uh, between like the political staffing stuff I do and organizing is, you know, when you work for an elected official, you are there to serve everybody. the district, you know, regardless of their opinions, if they completely disagree with everything that you stand for, um, or, you know, if they 100% agree with everything you stand for, it really doesn't matter. Uh, Your job is to serve them the best that you can and help them with whatever problem that they come to you with. And so just trying to do that work and and center center in on that as a political staffer uh, can sometimes be difficult, but also it's, you know, it's incredibly rewarding. Um, I tallied it up today. Today was actually my last day at Yarmouth's office. And I tallied it up today. And I was able to, you know, just through the work that I do there, is able to help people in Louisville secure about half a million dollars in benefits, like federal benefits, various federal benefits. So, um, you know, going home at the end of the day and knowing that you're doing that good work for people is what I value as a political staffer.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so as somebody who worked in both call centers and in a district office, where did you get the craziest people on the phone? Was it at the district office or at the call center?
2: <laughs> can I plead the fifth on this one? No, it uh, it depends, right? Like, uh, it depends. I, I, I worked at Spectrum, right? So, mm. you know, you can only imagine. It only gets so crazy when you're calling in about your internet. Like, you're just, you're either really mad or you're, you know, frustrated or whatever. But uh, the political working in a congressional office, a district office, it's, it's much different. Um, the issues that they're calling about. So obviously they could get more worked up. Um, and you don't have as much power to help. So, you know, yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, yeah absolutely. I, I understand totally what you're talking about. Okay. So if people want to get connected with their existing young Democrats chapter, or if they're in a County where there isn't a chapter, you know, how can they start one? Um, how can people get in touch with you if they're interested in doing either one of those things?
2: First thing I would suggest is go to Um We've got a sign-up uh, option, like, right there at the bottom of the page, I believe, bottom of the homepage. And so you'll be able to sign up there and get on our email list. That's the first thing I would suggest you do. Uh, there's also a section on our website for what chapters there are in, in Kentucky. So you can go and look and see – if your county is listed uh, and if your county is listed, your county president is also going to be listed. And so you can uh, you can reach out to that person. You can also send us a message through you know any of our socials uh, at KY Young Dems on Instagram and Twitter uh, and then just Kentucky Young Democrats on Facebook. Um, feel free to shoot us a message. We've got you know pretty uh, solid comms team working to make sure that those those messages get responded to. Um, if Brynn Martin is listening to this in Greenup County, I owe her a phone call, um, and it's coming, so I don't know uh, but she's doing great work down there. And, and yeah, so that's the tips. KYYoungGoose.com check your county, get on the email list. If you want to start a chapter, Um, if you want to start a chapter, you should email info at kyyoungdims.com and we will make sure that our VP Dustin Burley reaches out to you.
0: All right, Stefan. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here today.
2: Hey, thank you so much, Robert and uh, Jasmine. And thank you all for the work that you're doing on this podcast. It's phenomenal. And, uh, look forward to listening more. Jasmine,
0: how can people
1: get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings and you can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. We also have a Patreon page where you can just support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash Podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.